You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 277. Brian Zond and the beauty of Christ. Seek him. Oh, it's good. Hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. We've got a great conversation today. I am excited. One of the people that, uh, I guess I'll tell you a story in in just a minute, but uh, one of the people I've wanted to talk to for a long time is our guest today. Uh, Friends, if you're listening to this episode and you enjoy it, do me a favor, you're in the app, just send that little text button, hit share it with a friend, just share it with somebody who you think would also be blessed and encouraged because I'm guessing more than one of you is uh, going to be just encouraged by some of the things that we say in this conversation based on what I know of where, where we're going to go. So um, I, I, on my very third interview, if that makes any sense, my third interview is with my friend uh, who introduced me to our guest today. Uh, our guest is a pastor. He's an author, and I'm just going to call him kind of an American mystic. Brian Zond is with us. Brian, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. Good to be with you. Good to meet you. Is it okay if I call you an American mystic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, it's hard to be a mystic in America. You know, America does not lend itself to that. It does not. No, you're right. But I feel like that's kind of kind of an interesting place that you're where you're going with with when everything's on fire a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're on to something there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so friends, the, his new book, Brian's a, a writer. He's written lots lots of books, but the new book is called When Everything's on Fire. It's out now. You can get it anywhere you get books. Um, but the subtitle is Faith Forged from the Ashes, which is, uh, I think, really interesting. Why, why did where'd you come up with that, Brian? Why, why is, well, I'll let, you in, I'll let you in on the, uh, on the insider trade secrets, at least as far as I'm concerned. I always fight for my title. I get the title and I let the publisher, <laughs> my, my consolation prizes, they get to do the subtitle. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I had nothing to do with faith forwards from the ashes, but I did come up with the title right. when everything's on fire. Well, you, well, you read about that a little bit. So we'll, we'll get into that. I know that you, you pretty popular. So you should, I think it's a fine subtitle. There's nothing wrong with it. It is good. It is good. Um, You've shared a lot of your story, but kind of what we do on this show is is pretty biographical. And I want to go through at least a few of the highlights of your story before we get into some of where you're going with with uh, the book. So I know that you now you're in Kansas City now ish. Did you did you grow up there? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah, I, I've lived here all of my life. OK. And you had kind of the spiritual experience when you were kind of a teenager. Can you just give us kind of the highlights of that experience? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up going to church. I wasn't against it. It it was just something that was sort of lurking on the periphery of my life. It may have been providing some of the, some of the fuel that would be ignited in a very surprising way later on. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I would have called myself a Christian by default, right? But I didn't. I wasn't. Yeah, I didn't. I thought. I thought of Jesus much as one might think of any kind of historical figure. You know, someone that has some significance that's in the past that doesn't really occupy your thoughts day by day. Uh, but when I was 15, as a sophomore in high school, I just, I just, I, I got invited to this event, and some things happened there. And then I came home that night, and something else happened. And o- overnight. And, I, and I, you need to know, I was kind of right at a, I, you know, a 15 can be precarious, and it was for me. And I was a, I was already heading down some pretty destructive paths that I sort of shudder to think where I might have ended up if there hadn't have been a heavenly intervention as Jesus Christ into my life. And so just overnight, I went from being, I would describe myself as, you know, the long-haired high school Zeppelin freak to this newly minted Jesus freak. And that surprised everybody. And in, in some way, in some ways, I'm still on the trajectory mm. from that moment. It's like, you know, you can still, you can still uh, 
detect the radiation of the Big Bang, you know, from 13.8 billion years ago. I can still detect the radiation from that Big Bang in November 9th, 1974. Yeah. That's still in my life. Yeah. What do you, was it? What was it that happened when you were 15? That was kind of a. Well, what happened was um, some friends. I'd spent the day playing basketball with one of my friends who whose older sister was dating a Harlem Globetrotter. Wow. <laughs> this is an absolutely true story. And so my friend and I and a Harlem Globetrotter. <laughs> That's crazy. Absolutely. It's a true story. Spent the day playing basketball. And as evening came on, somehow I can't remember exactly that. I got roped into going to a event at the local college it was put on by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was a youth rally sort of thing. And it was big. I mean, a lot of people were there. It filled the gymnasium at Missouri Western University. And there was a, quote, Christian rock band that, that opened, and I thought they were just terribly lame. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember who it was? Maybe you don't want to say. I, yeah, I don't want I'm not going to say. Right, fair enough. <laughs> but I just thought it was just lame. And uh, But the speaker was David Wilkerson of the cross and switchblade book fame and i found him compelling and he had my attention and at the end he gave you know kind of a standard classic get saved altar call which i you know was i'm not a stranger to and I'd, I'd seen these things but I, I responded and and in sort of a almost in a in a daze and I was crying and I couldn't have told you why. And I was like the first person to respond. There was mm. probably hundreds that did, but I was like the first person there. And um, I remember David Wilkerson came over and I, you know, I came from a Baptist background. We didn't have anything too much like this. And uh, he laid his hands on me and said, this boy has Holy ghost vibrations. I had no wow. idea what that meant, <laughs> but okay. But then I got home about midnight. And I walked in my basement bedroom with its Led Zeppelin posters and all of that. And I don't know, I took about three steps into the room. And it, this is a mystical experience that I had as a teenager. And I, I just, I bear witness to it and people can decide what they think of it. But it was as if, I have to say as if, because it's hard to find a precise language, as if the room was suddenly immersed in some unearthly light. It was light, but it was different. And it seemed to not emanate from one place, but rather light itself had come into the room. And I knew it was the presence of Christ. And I dropped to my knees and I lifted my hands. I'd never seen that. I mean, I probably knew that people did this, but I'd never been around anybody doing this. And I lifted my hands and worshiped the one who was there. And that was really the thing that happened. And, hmm. and I was... You know, whatever language you want to use, I'm afraid it sounds cliche, but I was, what, born again? It was Damascus Road. Yeah. Uh, I was, I knew I was different. And I, and I don't have any, I don't have any story to tell about being called into the ministry, as we say. Mm. I just knew right then. I mean, I didn't know anything. I'm 15 years old. I'm just a kid. But I knew this is my life now. I, I knew that. And it was true. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry that more or less turned into our church when I was 22. And that was 40 years ago. So I've yeah. been pastoring the same congregation that started in the Jesus movement for 40 years. That's really fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, mystical, I think, is a great experience. I mean, you might just say you met Jesus, right? Like there's this moment where you just yeah, you met him. Yeah, but it, but it was it was experiential. Right. It wasn't necessarily cognitive. I mean, the mind was involved, but it was more than that. Right. It whatever whatever word you want to use, I'm mystical. In sometimes sometimes is a problematic phrase, and I understand people maybe are bothered by that. But I don't know of a least problem, a less problematic right. term. By mystic, we just we all we mean is we don't mean some sort of you know like new age occultist. We mean someone who seeks and at some level attains right. an experience within the mystery of God. Which, by the way the Bible sets forth as completely normative, right? That that is, that is the normal Christian life has some element of mysticism to it. 
Right. Yeah, totally. So that's one reason I started the show the way I did about hearing those kinds of spiritual experiences, right? Because one, I don't believe, even though I grew up this way, we grew up functionally cessationist, although we wouldn't say that, right? But uh, I believe that God still works, right? I I believe these things happen. And I wanted to share those stories. I wanted to hear more of those stories. I mean, most of my books are, if not all of them, as I think about them, they are really me working out cognitively in the form of book writing and thought things that I have encountered or at least intuited more mystically, more spiritually. And so I I think, you know, despite what my, you know, some of the critics might say, I think I land squarely within orthodoxy. That is the faith as once delivered and received and practiced and believed for 2000 years. And, and I've, I've done my work to become competent to engage in theology. That is the ongoing conversation of God revealed in Christ. But the real impetus of the ideas I've had that I feel compelled to write about usually have come from more mystical experiences, Hmm. which again, I think some people hear is strange, although I don't think the apostle Paul would think it's strange. (laughs) No, I don't think he would either. Or any of any of the, you know, prominent figures in scripture that is presented more or less as the pattern, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And if we take, if we do take the Bible seriously as a, so I look at it as more of a, uh, a manual for like, for what life with God is like, right? This is, this is sharing what life with God is like. If we look at it that way. Yeah. I think we should have those. Uh, we should expect those kinds of experiences. We can't control them obviously, but. Well, I, I, human beings are designed for that. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the uniqueness of being human. When in Genesis we read God saying, let us make humankind, mankind, in our image, according to our likeness, part of what that seems to imply is that we are a being that is created to be able to have interaction within the experience of God. So birds are created to fly, fish can swim, and humans can experience God, but we've been severed from that, or at least Right. An attempt has been made to sever us from that so that it seems, I think, more exotic and more strange and more rare than really we should think about it. Okay, wait. So when you first said that we've been severed from that, my first thought was sin separates us in some way or kind of obscures the ability to experience Yeah, and that's true enough, but that really wasn't what I was meaning. Right, which is why I wanted to clarify. So, like, you're you're meaning that... I'm meaning... and, And see, unless you put forth some effort. It's hard to understand the time in which you live because you've never lived in any other time. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so that's why I spend a little bit of time. I don't necessarily say it like this, but in the first two, two chapters or so of the book, I'm trying to help people understand why it is that faith has become so difficult here in late modernity. Oh, it's not just in the first two books. It's kind of sprinkled throughout. I'm trying to give people a little bit of a background of what happened with the beginning of the Enlightenment, which is by no means all bad. Mm-hmm. It leads to the scientific revolution that makes me talking to you on Zoom possible. Right. And so, yeah, I'm not opposed to it and all of that. I mean, I've got a new iPhone that might arrive any moment. <laughs> you know, I'm down with all that. And, and, I, and I love going to a 21st century dentist, right? <laughs> as opposed to a medieval dentist. <laughs> you don't want the dentist going all medieval on you. <laughs> that being said, uh, the Enlightenment arrives. If you want to pick a date, you say maybe 1638 with the publication of Discourse of Method by Rene Descartes who, by the way, was a believing Catholic, wasn't trying to make faith in God difficult, but he did. Right. <laughs> With his famous axiom, cogito ergo sum. And this is, he was trying to find what I would describe as epistemological bedrock. That is, what can we know? And then after we know this, how do we build? And he says, well, you can doubt everything. True enough. But in his process of thinking about this, he says, wait a minute, I can doubt everything. But in the, in the phenomenon of my doubting, I'm thinking, I think, therefore I am. That's what cogito ergo sum means. I think, therefore I am. And he thinks he's found epistemological bedrock. I kind of doubt that. 
But what happens is, is that we are now born into a world that assumes, more or less, that all that can be known in the phenomenon of being is ascertainable through the five physical senses and the various instruments that can amplify them. So that ultimately the universe and the phenomenon of being can be only known through microscopes and telescopes and other forms of science and things like that. I have no problem with science directly, none. I, I know of no scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. I simply wanna push back and say, once science empiricism has said all it can say about the phenomenon of being, it has not said all that can or needs to be said. Because what empiricism tends to do is exclude the possibility of things like revelation and spirit and heart. And that's why when we're talking about Rene Descartes, we also mm -hmm. simultaneously need to bring into the conversation his contemporary and intellectual equal, Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest mathematical minds in history. So he's certainly no opponent to rational thought at all. Yet he'd had his own mystical encounter with Christ that he, when he was, I think, 34 years old, that he described as his night of fire. And I talk about that in the book, but it's from Blaise Pascal that we get the famous axiom, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. I think most people, if you explain what we mean by that to them, resonate with it and are intent, unless you, unless you have made an outright hardcore commitment to like logical positivism and atheism and things like that, most people resonate with that and go, you know, that's true. But within late, and see, so modernity begins in the 17th century, and here we are in the early 21st century. What means, what that means is it's come of age. What it means mm -hmm. is it's no, it's no longer just influencing philosophers and scientists. It influences everybody in Western civilization that we are, without being specifically told this, just, just the ethos, the, the zeitgeist of the age in which we live, we're sort of told that you can't trust spiritual intuition. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust, you can't actually seriously believe that God would speak to you. And that if it can't be empirically verified, then somehow it's invalid. Most of us have the weight of that assumption upon us. And I want to help people break free from it because it is actually an entirely faulty assumption, which interestingly in cutting edge philosophy, no one believes that anymore. Oh, <laughs> cutting edge philosophy has moved well beyond uh, the dominance of empiricism. It's the good side of post-modernity. Not everything's good about post-modernity by any means, but the one thing it's done that is a benefit as far as I'm concerned is it's punctured the pride of modernity. And it is chasing modernity and saying, look, you, you, can, you cannot claim that through your particular method of empiricism, you can know everything that is, that has yeah. to do with being. So, okay, that well, was a long run. That, well, I, I enjoyed every second of it, but uh, when are our theologians going to catch up, Brian? Because that's what I'm like. Uh, so well, I mean, the best, theologians, the best theologians are caught up, but not all of them are the best. That sounds like a terrible, that sounds terribly arrogant. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, like there, there, there are some the message in the evangelical church that I grew up in, even today, I have friends, I'll get this on Facebook. Don't trust your feelings. Don't believe everything. Don't follow your heart. And you'll see these things. You'll just see this on all kinds I, I, of places. I know. Yeah. Now, now the difference is though, here's a little difference. Uh, so I encounter Christ. Yes, a mystical experience, but also within the context of the Jesus movement, right? The 1970s, which people may or may not know about, but it was a true, I would say, spiritual phenomenon. Others could call it a sociological or religious phenomenon, but it was a phenomenon that, that was quite noteworthy. Where you had, I suppose, if you count it globally, eventually millions of predominantly young people that are influenced by the counterculture movement that had really begun maybe a decade earlier in the 60s 
finally deciding that the problem with the critique that the counterculture made upon dominant society was valid, but their problem was they didn't find a Messiah better than the Beatles. Right. <laughs> and so you have people, you have young people, let me say it real simple, finding Jesus by the thousands. And it was sort of, in, it was sudden and a little bit inexplicable and a little bit wonderful. Now, I, no doubt I have some nostalgia about it. And yeah. I can also critique it and I can talk about its limitations. But it was aptly named. It was very centered on Jesus. And the Jesus movement then led me, led me, it led everybody that was in it pretty much because this is just how it worked. It led you into the charismatic movement, the charismatic renewal that comes just about the same time. Yep. And the charismatic movement I describe as good until it wasn't. It eventually became diseased with consumerism and and lots of other maladies. But in its early days, it just was a revival of the idea that you can experience God. So that's my roots. So so interestingly, interestingly, Eric, I never just I have never at one point in my life that there's never been a moment in my life where I have self-identified as an evangelical. Oh, uh, I was a Jesus freak. I was a charismatic. I was whatever. I didn't have a real tidy term for it, but I knew I wasn't evangelical because that was that, that those were those cessationists, right? You know, those were Southern Baptists and the like. And we thought, well, we're not those. What what made evangelical become a more common term was the culture wars, right? Forced everybody under the same tent in that sense. So. I, under, I completely know what you're talking about. I completely get it. Yeah. I'm just saying that wasn't my experience. I mean, yes, we were told that you couldn't just depend on feelings and all that, but the idea that you can't experience, that you couldn't get a word from God and God could that God couldn't speak to you or heal you. Right. I mean, we, we never thought that way. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, that's a, I think that's a good, you know, Eugene Peterson uh, grew up, a, a Pentecostal. This would have been before the charisma. His yeah, yeah. mother was an Assembly of God preacher. He grew up in the Assembly of God church, and in his latter years, he became a good friend. And I asked him one day, I said, uh, what do you think about your Pentecostal background? Because, you know, by the time he becomes famous as a writer and all that, he's a Presbyterian. I said, well, what do you think about your Pentecostal background? And he's, this is what he said to me. He said, well, I think it's the best background, isn't it? He says, you can't stay there forever. But it is the best place to begin because at the beginning, you were taught that God can be experienced and that God is active and that you can expect God to do things in your life. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I love that. Okay. So work that out for me is in some of your life as far as moving. Um, so I'd love to kind of follow the journey from meeting Jesus to kind of learning the ways of Jesus. And it sounds like you did that in ministry even, like if, if you were very quickly. Well, look, I was... I was just on the cusp of 16 when I encountered Christ. And by the time I was 17, yeah. I was leaving the ministry. Uh, it was a coffee house, as we called them back then, which, which meant it was mostly a music venue for the Jesus music scene. And so I'm booking artists and they're coming in. And But, but there were times when you would also have a, a teaching or whatever, and I was the one that was predominantly doing that. So that it turns, so that eventually it turns into Word of Life Church. By the time I was 22 in November of 1981, um, so I could say it this way: I could say I have been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult because I was essentially doing it when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. I'm not saying that's a good idea, <laughs> a pattern to be followed, but it's right. it's my story. It just what happened. Yeah, there, there, it's it's there wasn't a it wasn't a plan. There wasn't a decision. It's just you, we got something swept us up, and this is what was happening. And I don't think it's I don't think it could be replicated again exactly, you know. But it's what happened. So I've it's been my life. I I have lived a life of ministry, pastoring, teaching, preaching, all longer than I've been adult. I'm 62 now. Yeah. So. Well, I'm sure that you had people who kind of showed you not only the ropes of ministry, yeah. but also just kind of your own personal spiritual development and kind of learning to read scripture, interpret scripture, right. preach scripture, things like that. Who, who were some of those people? And, and tell me, tell me how that well, you, you wouldn't know their names. Um, That's okay. They were, they were, they were a couple of guys from, um, 
the St. Louis area. I'm on the Kansas City side of the state of Missouri. And through just through just one way or another, I met a guy named Ron Sutton, and then later on, a guy named Roland Smith. They were both leaders, pastors. Ron was 10 years older than me. Roland was probably 20 years older than me, maybe even more. And, and they took me under their wing, mentored me, helped me kind of get a clue <laughs> for, yeah. for how to go about, you know, leading a church. And these are these, along with one other pastor, are the people that laid hands on me and ordained me into the ministry. Now, and and um, I'll be forever indebted to them. Now, but to tell the truth, and then, and then later on, a, 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 somebody out there may know the name Ernie Gruen, who was pastor of a large charismatic church in Kansas City called Full Faith. Full Faith Church of Love. You can tell that's from charismatic <laughs> yeah, totally. movement days. Full Faith Church of Love. And uh, it was a big church, and it was, it was the center for the charismatic movement in the Kansas City area, which was one of the big centers of that. And he became also a, a mentor, sort of a, maybe the closest thing to a spiritual father I ever had. And so I'm indebted to these men, but there also came a time when I had to go beyond where they were able to bring me. Mm. And uh, that, so if I, I'm going to keep telling the stories, so I'm going to jump up a lot of years here. So, you know, I've told you how I got started and uh, our church stayed small for seven years and then it began to grow. And then it grew like just outrageously. It was, it was just absurd how fast it grew. I mean, I, I did live through several years of pretty much every church, every Sunday being record attendance. And for any pastors out there, I know you're thinking, dear Lord in heaven, uh, it was exciting. It was dangerous, but it was exciting. Yeah. And it was something to live through where there was that much energy from growth. And we grew to several thousand. Um, and then I, and then I'm entering my forties. And by the metrics that Americans like to measure success, everything is great. Just don't mess it up. And yet I began to have this growing sense of unease. You know, everything's going great, but I start feeling, I'm going to use that word. Before I was thinking, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like this seems too accommodated. It, I feel like it, it's very American. I know that when we started out, you know, back in my teens, it was radical and revolutionary, countercultural. Now it seems pretty accommodated to the wider culture. It's, you know, just America with a Jesus fish. Right. And I had those feelings, and I didn't quite know what to do about it. And so I didn't really talk about it much with anybody. But I began to investigate. I thought, and see, I have to understand when, when you're part of a movement, you know, we're a non-denominational church, but that doesn't mean anything because we're part of the charismatic movement, which is its own thing. Right. It doesn't have any hierarchy or central governance, but you all are reading the same books, listening to the same preachers, the same conferences, that sort of thing. So you're formed in a certain way. And so be it. But the problem is you can be completely oblivious to anything outside of that world. And so I didn't know what to do. I just felt like something had gotten off somewhere. And so what I started doing, I started reading uh, three things. I started reading philosophy, which I'd always kind of been interested in whenever I would encounter it here and there, a little bit in school, a little bit in college, little bit, finding some Kierkegaard books on my father's shelf, things like that. But then, you know, it, you may not know this, Eric, but a lot of charismatic pastors don't read much philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so that kind of, but I returned to that. And then I began to read the church fathers. My thinking was, I just want to go back to the beginning. I mean, I knew the New Testament, but what came next? Right. So I just start reading the church fathers. And then I decided to really give myself to becoming well acquainted with what I would just call the Western canon of classic literature, whether it's novels or philosophy or whatever it would be. Yep. And so I'm reading all of this stuff, but it's mostly old, you know, so I'm reading 
Plato and I'm reading church fathers and I'm reading some whatever. And, but, but by the time I got to 2004, I'm 45 at this point. So, or so I'd like to say at halfway to 90. And I, and I felt like, okay, something's got to give here. And I began the year with, with a radical fast. I don't think I'm going to talk about it because it'll freak people out, but I really did. I got down to 130 pounds. I was very desperate. Oh, wow. I would never recommend it to anybody. I, I wouldn't, I would try to talk anybody out of doing what I did. Um, but I was desperate. And well, I'll just tell for 22 days, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything for 22 days, but pray. And I didn't even really know how to pray then, but I put in the time, pray, preach when I'm supposed to sleep at night. Didn't eat. I didn't go anywhere. I found out I could drive back and forth between my house and my church for 22 days on one tank of gas. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't do it. And so that sort of set the stage for some things to happen. Then it was August, early August of 2004, and I was feeling very frustrated. And I prayed one day here in my house. I said, God, this is okay. Here's a mystical experience or something. You put, you can put the label on it and call it whatever yeah. you want, but here's the story. So I was, you know, becoming familiar with church fathers and philosophy and some things like this, but I knew I needed something more contemporary, but I was just embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I didn't know what it was or where to find it. You know, it's hard to know what you don't know. And so I prayed. I said, God, show me what to read. I prayed that prayer. God, show me what to read. Two minutes later, my wife, Perry, walks in the room, comes up to me, hands me a book and says, here, I think you should read this. Now, she had, she didn't know what I'd prayed. I just prayed, God, show me what to read. My wife walks in, hands me a book, says, here, I think you should read this. Hold on, Eric. It gets stranger. Uh, Perry had not read this book. It gets stranger. We don't know how this book showed up in our house. Perry found it. I didn't buy it. She didn't buy it. Wow. Neither one of us brought it home, but somehow it landed in our house. And she found it. She looked at the cover, looked at the back, and said, Brian might like this. And she brought it to me and said, here, I think you should read this. I began reading the next day when I was flying somewhere. I was on a plane. And within the first two pages, it was like a door had been kicked open in my mind. And everything began to change from that moment on. And the book, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Right there. Yep. Changed my life. And, and what happened was it... it that itself began to change how I just thought about everything, about salvation, the kingdom of God, what it meant to be a pastor, what my task was. That changed everything. But the other thing it did was it, I found the thread. I found the thread. And I went on, a, I, for about three years, I went on this voracious reading program that, that I look back with, at, with some astonishment. <laughs> that I read as much as I did in that period of time. I pretty much read all of N.T. Wright. I read all of David Bentley Hart. I read almost all of Brueggemann. I began to read Miroslav Volk, began to read Karl Barth. And because you would just find one after the other. And, and I tended to read in, so, okay, I'm going to read all of N.T. Wright. So I read all of his stuff. Now, now I'm going to read all of David Bentley Hart. So I read all of it. And so I would have these programs of just reading everything that up to that point, these people had put out and that changed me of course right and if it changes me it changes my preaching because i don't know how to make any kind of i mean i can't pretend to be someone else when i'm preaching it's all because it's i've just lived this life right i mean i was i preached my first sermon when i was 16 i've just grown and i just live in the moment and preach what's burning in my heart of course now everything's changing and i think the church the, the bulk of the church probably could have stuck with where we were going until I began to bring critique of, a, of civil religion and American nationalism yeah. and the whole religious right agenda. And that is when I was able to lose a thousand people. And that was a very painful time because the people we were losing, we knew and loved, they weren't nameless, faceless people. They were people that maybe had led to the Lord, baptized, married, baptized their kids, married their kids. 
And they were leaving saying things like, you know, Brian's gone liberal, which that didn't make sense to me. It didn't feel like that. Or they would say, sometimes they were less articulate and they would just say, he's backslidden, which really hurt because I felt like if anything, I was making great advance. I was front sliding, yeah, <laughs> not backsliding. And uh, so we had to go through that whole, th- that whole transition, believe it or not, and this will scare pastors, but I'm just telling you a story. I'm not yeah. doing anything other than telling you my story. It took 10 years from about 2004 to 2014 to fully transition the church to basically where we are now. And then it took Perry and I another two years to heal. So it was 12 years of mm. that we look back with very contradictory emotions. In one sense, it was among the most exciting times of our life, finding the Christianity that we really felt was worthy of Christ. I mean, we, I, I never had any doubts about Jesus. I, I just had doubts about a Christianity American style. I needed to find a Christianity that was worthy of the Christ who had captured my heart. And we were making those discoveries and finding it. So that was thrilling, but then being misunderstood mm. and being maligned and being rejected was also very painful. So to borrow a phrase from Dickens, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. All right. So I, I love that. Just tried to cover about 30 plus years. And that, and that's good. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. I find it fascinating yeah, Dallas Willard was sort of formational. I mean, anybody who reads him is formational for, but right, like his, right. He, he's, he's, a he's one of the gateway drugs. <laughs> That's right. That is so right. For me, it was the spirit of the disciplines. I was actually doing a paper on disciplines and for a phys ed class in college, right? Like I was like, just trying to meet a senior requirement yeah. and it just like, Oh, there's this, that kingdom way of seeing the world. Like I'm, all my friends were Calvinists, right? All my, like all that, like, there was, it was just so different and it was so different from what I had yeah. grown up in, but it made more sense of what I was reading in the new Testament and what I saw in other people's experience, um, which totally, so I could, I can relate to that a little bit, but, um, yeah, he definitely kind of opens, opens it up. Did you, I don't know what else you've read. What's his late there's, I know he's passed away, but his, uh, the divine omission, I went and read that. Mm-hmm. Some of those like yeah. read talks all and all that, just like, whew. My wife, the big book from him that influenced her was Renovation of the Heart, Mm -hmm. which she, you know, let's say 10 years ago, I don't know how many book studies she led. That was like one of her missions to to lead book studies on Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. Love that. Yeah, because that teaches you. So how how does transformation happen, right? How does this actually work? That was one of the questions that led me. I always say I went to college to learn to study the Bible and seminary to learn how to pray, right? Because nobody, mm-hmm. nobody teaches us how to do any of those things. Um, at least where, where I, where I grew up anyway. Okay. Well, so that's, I think it's really fascinating, Brian, how that kind of led you into those things. I was thinking while you were saying we were maligned and we were misunderstood. I'm like, well, yeah, Jesus was maligned and misunderstood. Like, of course, of course that was, should yeah. be expected. And you find some comfort in that, but it still hurts. Sure. Totally. Totally. Uh, I, I did have a moment where it was interesting, where I, I overheard it. Strangely enough, it was a, it was a pastor friend from Denver, and we were together at the National Pastors Conference in San Diego. And some guy had taught on the Psalms. I've forgotten his name. I doubt that I could come up with again. Maybe if I tried real hard, but I'm not going to try that hard. <laughs> uh, and and my friend wanted to talk with him afterwards. And I was just overhearing their conversation, but in, in the, and my pastor friend was explaining about the suffering he'd been going through and, you know, just the pains of pastoring and the man to whom he was speaking just looked at him and said, you were entering the sufferings of Christ. Mm. Now he said it to my friend, but I never forgot it. And, and I think I was supposed to overhear that. And it made it bearable. It didn't make it, it didn't make it not painful, but it made it bearable. I said, okay, if what I'm feeling is entering the sufferings of Christ, I can do this. Yeah. I will do this. But it still hurt. But it still hurts, right? And, and by the by the by the way, those wounds are healed today. Uh, I'm not putting a brave face on it. I'm telling the truth. Yeah. Those wounds are healed. I can show you the scars, you know, mm-hmm. but but they don't hurt anymore. They they help me tell the story but there's no pain in them anymore. How did you feel like, what, 
Let me put it this way, because John of the Cross talks about the dark night of the soul, right? So maybe that was yeah. the dark night of the soul. When and usually he talks about how God will use that to kind of take things away from us and give us a new identity, right? He'll take away the identities that we had put on that weren't us and then give us the ones that he wants us to be. How, how, what do you think that season of life did for, for you in that regard? Well, what did it do? You know, I, I, I look back with a lot of, um, I don't, can't find the right word here. That was such a risky time for me mm. because you understand, okay, let's, let's go back to 2004. I was 45 years old and that's old enough to be at least thinking about how do you land it? Yeah. And um, things were great. As I said, as far as like, it's a big church and lots of money and people and opportunities that go with that. Everything's great. And yet I was feeling like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, like that U2 song. Yeah. I, Jesus, I'm not looking outside of Jesus, but I don't think Jesus equates into exactly what it is I see here. Now, what what the, the strange sensation I have as I think about that time is how easy it would have been for me to miss it. Right. For me to have said, oh, well. And I, I, Eric, I just almost shudder to think where I would be today if I had missed that last train. I, we're or, just kind of a weird conversation. I got a poem. Can I read a poem? Yeah, totally. Why you look talk a little bit? I got to find. Yeah, why you look that up? So, what I'm thinking. I mean, obviously, every right now, everybody's listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? Right. Um, but also. Think about if you if you cared more about church about growing your church than you did about finding Jesus. I mean, those are the kinds of things that happen where pastors care more more about themselves than about him. It's a poem that I wrote a few years ago, and, and when I write poems, I never set out to write a poem. They just you know something strikes me and I write a poem. It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally it does. And it's about that period. It's me looking back on that certain period of time and thinking, oh, what if I'd missed it? Because, you know, pastors that hear my story, they do say to me, you know, that took a lot of courage, yeah. to which I say, well, I was terrified, but at least I did it. Anyway, I, the, the, the poem is filled with all kinds of illusions that, that you will never get unless I sit down and explain them all to you, and I don't think I'm going to do that. But I would like to read the poem because I think it, Sometimes you can communicate something you're feeling in poetry as the way that the only way you could do it. So the poem is called The Last Train Out of Monkey Town. He caught the last train out of Monkey Town, bought a ticket on Easter 04 and was eastbound, left the wagon train, train beamed in from outer space, said adios to the obtuse and turned his face towards something he hoped was there. Was it the conductor's last call? With a shudder, he sometimes wonders what would have happened if he'd missed that train. He fears he'd have shrunk smaller and smaller until he disappeared, not entirely invisible, but totally unrecognizable to who he was supposed to be, the one he still hopes to become. Curiosity may have killed some cat, but not this cat. Mm. For this cat, curiosity was a saving grace salvation from the dismal fate of the incurious, the last man who invents happiness, or so he thinks, while he sits on his couch with 700 channels and stupidly blinks. That curious cat will tell you, age may steal your good looks and jump shot, but don't let it abscond with your curiosity. What's the point of living for a score if you know it all in the first score? Don't sit there until the raven croaks nevermore. A world of wonder lies behind an untried door. Truth is not a laminated card you carry in your pocket. Truth is a long, hard road, and you have to walk it. And you might as well know it's a toll road, too. You will be required to sacrifice your certitude, but that's okay. It's only a small pittance to bid good riddance to a dead-end existence. Was it a train he caught or a roadie walk? Seems the metaphors got mixed. Oh, well. 
Whether he hit the road or rode the rails, he thanks God for the grace to bid farewell to the backwaters of Monkey Town for a journey through dark heat to a new dawn of becoming, becoming, becoming. Wow. That's the last train out of Monkey Town. It's in my book, Postcards from Babylon. It's not in When Everything's on Fire. I love that. But you might have heard the Nietzsche line that's also about the last men who invent happiness and stupidly blink. Yeah. We've, we've invented happiness. That's a, that's a Nietzsche line. Oh, nice. I love it. Yeah. You talk about Nietzsche in here a little bit um, and kind of how he predicted where we're going. He would not be surprised yeah. that uh, no, he would not be where, surprised where we are right now. Um, okay. I So I would love to shift into, into the book just a little bit. Because uh, sure. one thing in particular, what I hear you describing and maybe this, maybe, I don't know if you like this word or not, but is sort of your own deconstruction in a way. Um, yeah. And this is, is becoming a hotter topic. You know, everybody's mad at Matt Chandler right now for that, uh, that sermon clip or whatever. But there's, there's, uh, it's, it's getting, it's, it's been there for a while, but it's growing in sort of intensity. People are talking about it and it's kind of starting to come to popular consciousness. And you write in here about deconstruction, how like, well, let's take deconstruction apart. And maybe, you know, this book sort of struck me. I think you said maybe in the intro that you're kind of helping people try to navigate that without losing their faith entirely, which is, which is a beautiful thing. It's really important. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I've already alluded to a, maybe a crisis of faith in the sense that I had to rethink the theology mm-hmm. that I had inherited at midlife and had to begin to lose some things in order that I might gain something new. I would never have called that deconstruction for a couple of reasons. One, I know enough philosophy to know that deconstruction is something given to us by Jacques Derrida, French philosopher of the 20th century, who did good work. I mean, he's one of the most acclaimed philosophers of the 20th century, especially in philosophy of language. And I understand what he means by deconstruction. I just don't think it's necessarily all that applicable to what is going on among uh, evangelical, post-evangelical Christians in the American context. Nevertheless, that's the term that's in vogue, so I'll use it. But I certainly wasn't using it in 2004 because, one, that term wasn't in vogue, and two, it wasn't really what was happening. And three, deconstruction can be too close to destruction. And I would never have seen it as that. In fact, my favorite metaphor is this, and I don't use it in when everything's on fire because I already wrote a whole book based on it. <laughs> but but water to wine. Yeah. It was, I was I described my situation. I was at the party and the wine had run out, and I was in fear that the party was going to be over. And Jesus showed up and turned the water into wine. So okay, but then another way of so I use some other ways of talking about it in the book. So uh, the second chapter is called Deconstructing Deconstruction. So I talk about what deconstruction actually is and why it it may make certain contributions to how we understand texts and the bids for power that often lurk within or behind the texts, Mm -hmm. but that it is a project that seems to have no end game. You can just sit around and eternally deconstruct. And if you do that with Christian faith, one day you wake up and you have no more Easter's. There's nothing left. It's all gone. And that's not a project I'm necessarily interested in. Um, So I I talk about, well, let's let's talk about it like this. There's a couple of ways. First, we'll say it this way. It's as if, uh, imagine a, a wonderful icon an icon image of Christ has been discovered in a Russian monastery somewhere that had been, it's a thousand years old. It had been lost. It had been neglected. It ended up in some corner. It's been there for a thousand years. And now it's kind of, it's though it's, we know it's priceless. We know it's valuable, but it's been covered by a patina of dirt and soot and grime and the smoke of incense and candles and all of that, so that now the image of Christ is almost entirely obscure. But what do we do? Do we throw it away? Oh, no, 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 we don't throw it away. What we do is we bring in the restoration artist to bring back the image, to remove that which is a contaminant and doesn't belong to the icon. We're going to take all of that away. Now, whatever the process involved is, I'm sure that when the restoration artist shows up, 
in her toolkit, you won't find dynamite and sledgehammers. Right. <laughs> because this is a delicate process because we're dealing with something very precious. And so we don't want to be cavalier or reckless about it. Another way of thinking about it is, and I use this in the book, I talk about renovating your theological house. That, that I, we've already talked about, I had my encounter with Christ, but we all end up inheriting, building, constructing our theological house. This is the palace in the mind for Christ the King. This is how we think about God and speak about God as revealed in Christ. We could just call it our theology, but let's call it our theological house. Because what you, what you do when you talk this way is you can make the vital distinction between Christ himself and the, the palace of thought in the mind. And so at midlife, I began to realize that I was embarrassed by certain aspects of my theological house, that the beauty of Christ seemed to clash with some of the garish styles mm -hmm. or dilapidated rooms in my theological house, because the theological house isn't just one thing. It's not just it's not a one-room bungalow. Right. It's a sprawling mansion with dozens of rooms. And so beginning with, well, somewhat with the church fathers, but certainly with Dallas Willard and all the things we've talked about, I am then embarking upon a project of renovating, remodeling my theological house. Of course, I'm still living in it. So here's the problem. Have you ever remodeled a house while living in it? Yep. Well, if you have, then you know it's inconvenient. And it's going to take you longer than you planned. And it's going to cost you more than you thought. And that's my, that's my story. But I was able to do it so that now mm. I feel like I'm not, I don't claim to have perfect theology. That would be, first of all, the only perfect theology is Christ himself. Uh, and I don't claim, though, that my extraneous theology is all perfect. I don't mean that. But I do feel that it is commensurate with the beauty of Christ. And I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Um, so, but the, the very the point of that illustration or that analogy, that metaphor is this: is that you can make the all important distinction between Christ Himself and your theology. What happens within certain forms of fundamentalism is everything gets tied together, right? So tightly. I mean, I've seen people. I know of people who reached the point where they could no longer believe in young earth creationism, the dinosaurs were wandering around with people, you know, 6,000 years ago. Therefore, they can't be a Christian. Yep. Now, now what I want to say to that person, kindly, pastorally, is <laughs> you may no longer be a Christian, but you're still a fundamentalist. Right. <laughs> you, you've just taken a fundamentalist approach to rethinking Christianity. And so it's possible to rethink various claims and ideas and doctrines and theologies and still retain the essential faith in Christ. Um, so the problem with fundamentalism is sometimes it's fundamentalism or bust, and sometimes it goes bust. And it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't. And that is what I love about the message of when everything's on fire, because I think we do see this happening so much. It's, you know, I'm on deconstruction TikTok, you it, it know. Is, it, it is it's happening. not just it's not just some sort of you know, it's the cool thing to do. I don't think people no, wake up in agreed. the morning and think, "Ah, I think I'll have a crisis of faith just for the fun of it." No, this is what Nietzsche foretold and foresaw. Nietzsche understood that we are arriving at a place where in his famous words, God is dead. He doesn't mean that God is has expired in the sense that God now has once was alive and has died. He doesn't mean that. What Nietzsche means by that is that he foresaw in the late 1800s that God was no longer at the center of Western society, but not everybody knew it yet. In fact, very few knew right. it. What he sets forth in the parable of the madman, where a, a madman walks yes. into a village on a Sunday morning holding a holding a lantern aloft and crying, where is God? Oh. Where is God? I'm seeking God. I can't find God. So the villagers begin. Go ahead. Well, is the culture war then a Christian attempt to keep God there? I think the culture war is, among other things, a wrongheaded reaction 
to that which is inevitably the case, that we have arrived in a secular age. Right. And you're not going to turn back the clock. I mean, the idea that we're going to make faith viable by getting prayer in school or the Ten Commandments in the county courthouse or whatever little particular, you know, say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays and yell at Starbucks for their cups, <laughs> as if those kind of battles are going to make faith more viable. That's that's foolish right. and no it, that's it, that's we're it's going to take a much more serious and sophisticated approach and we're not going to change the epoch in which we live but right. look there are wise sages that can help us through that i mean for every nietzsche you have a kierkegaard for every voltaire you have a dostoevsky right dostoevsky can say it's not as a child that I believe in Christ. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. And that's why I draw so heavily upon people like Kierkegaard and especially Dostoevsky in the book, because they understood quite accurately where we were at. In one sense, they would fully agree with Nietzsche. But they found, despite Nietzsche's accurate description of the end of essentially Christendom, Faith in Christ remains entirely viable, but we're going to have to take a new approach to it, and, and which would actually be a more authentic approach. Christendom was always a malignant distortion mm. of Christian faith to begin with, and so let wow. that go ahead and burn down. Um, wow! But but the 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 eternal logos is uh, what's what's the phrase that's used in Scripture? The imperishable seed. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's the seed that can go through the fires of modernity, the fires of secularism, mm -hmm. and actually can then begin to grow anew because, it's been, because, the, because the clutter of Christendom has been cleared away, and now there can be this new growth forest of something that is actually more authentic to begin with. Yes. Wow, that's so good and so true. Okay, I don't want to keep you terribly long, but I'm I'm just enjoying all of it. One thing I did want to ask you, if I can just ask you one last question, because uh, you you wrote "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God," right? Which just the whole idea, like I love the way you played with Jonathan Edwards <laughs> that with the title. Uh, I also I get in so much trouble when I when I say that love is the end game of the spiritual journey, right? That it's it that God is love. Anytime I post anything like that, I mean, Christians are just, they always so, hit the butts, but they're up in arms. They're <laughs> up in arms. And then I have other Christians, some of whom are pastors who want to do violence to people who won't get on board or whatever. And I'm trying to figure out how do we, and that's not love. It's not, it's not love. Like they, they just completely are against it. How, how do you, I don't, you don't necessarily have to respond to those people, but isn't that, it just doesn't seem, it seems antithetical to Christ. It seems antithetical to right. everything. And so, how do you handle that? Well, let's think about it like this. So we just celebrated the first Sunday of November, the 40th anniversary of Word of Life Church, where I've been pastor the whole time. And so that lends to a little bit of reminiscing and looking back and, you know, people put together photo montages where I'm in a lot of them, you know, 20, 30, 40 years younger. Yeah. And, uh, and it brings back memories. Now, I know full well. I mean, what we have all of the, probably every sermon that I've ever preached at Word of Life Church in 40 years, not probably, I'm quite certain of this, is recorded and it's there. You could go find it. I mean, probably you can't go find it because right. I probably wouldn't do, but somebody could. Yeah, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> and you could find me preaching sermons from let's say 25 30 years ago that would embarrass me today i got i would just go oh dear lord uh, embarrassed but not ashamed there's a difference mm -hmm. embarrassed but not ashamed because what i was doing in the moment i was doing in good faith you can do bad theology in good faith as long as you stay in good faith though and stay open there's always hope for growth and so you know i can look at Brian's on circa 1993 and say, I, I, that's kind of embarrassing, but you know what? Just give him more time. He just needs time. Be patient with him. So if we see people that we feel like aren't, you know, 
up to speed with where we are today. Well, don't shame them. Yeah. Don't, don't, I mean, just give them time. Just present something beautiful. Trust Christ in his beauty to win the day and, and let it, let that happen. Did you hear my I grandson? Do. That's great. Just wandered down here. This is, this is, this is Pax. Hey, Pax. And this is, this is one of my eight grandchildren. <laughs> oh, good to meet you. I love that. Um, man, that's such good advice, Brian. Let people, I mean, everybody needs room to grow, right? Like there, there is room. We talk about spiritual journey all the time on the show. And uh, it's just harder to let some people be there, <laughs> even though I need it too, right? We all we all need that that kindness. All right, Brian, thanks so much for being here. Friends, uh, brianzon.com is Brian's website. When everything's on fire, it's available now. Faith Forged from the Ashes. You should definitely check it out if this any of this conversation resonates with you. Brian, do you want to leave us with anything? Any last words? No, other, other than to say trust the beauty of Christ. Where where you see beauty in Christ, lean into that, hold on to that. Everything else you can hold on to pretty loosely. Everything else becomes negotiable. And whether it's your own faith or you're trying to help others continue in the faith, lean into the beauty of Christ. Uh, that's what I'm, you know, back to wandering around back there. Yeah. If, if I have faith for Pax to be a, how old are you, Pax? Are you four? <laughs> All right. So, when, if, if he's going to be a Christian when he's 24, it's going to be probably because he has seen the beauty of Christ and wanted to stay connected with that. Amen. Amen. That is certainly the most beautiful thing I know. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you.